Good morning, ECC. It's a great joy and privilege uh, to be here with you this morning to worship our holy God. And for those of you who don't know me, my name is Sam, and I'm one of the lay elders here. And I had the privilege of preaching to you uh, from uh, the, the Psalm 77. Um, this is the last psalm in our series in the Psalms of Lament. And I trust that through this series, you have felt blessed. You have felt that the Lord has been speaking to you and that you have understood that as Christians, the Christian life does not always necessarily need to be happy, clappy, as it were, but that there are times when we grieve and when we're in sorrow. And in those times, we turn to God in lament. We turn to God in grief and we look to him to help us in our situation. We trust in him, the one who can help us. And so I trust that this series has been a true blessing to you and that you have found real comfort in the scriptures. We're going to read together from Psalm 77 and we'll read the whole Psalm. Psalm 77. To the choir master, according to Jedithum, a psalm of Asaph. I cry aloud to God, aloud to God, and he will hear me. In the day of my trouble, I seek the Lord. In the night, my hand is stretched out without wearying. My soul refuses to be comforted. When I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints, Selah. You hold my eyelids open. I am so troubled that I cannot speak. I consider the days of old, the years long ago. I said, let me remember my song in the night. Let me meditate in my heart. Then my spirit made a diligent search. Will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his compassion? Selah. Then I said, I will appeal to this, to the years of the right hand of the Most High. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. Your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God? You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your might among the peoples. You, with your arm, redeemed your people, the children of Jacob and Joseph. When the waters saw you, O God, when the waters saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, the deep trembled. The clouds poured out water. The skies gave forth thunder. Your arrows flashed on every side. The crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind. Your lightning lighted up the world. The earth trembled and shook. Your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters. Yet your footprints were unseen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. Let us bow our heads and pray one more time. Our gracious God and Father, we are so thankful, so privileged that we can come before you together as a, a gathering like this and consider the truths of your word. 
consider the truth of lament, how we can turn to you in our time of grief, how we can cry out to you for help in our day of trouble. We pray that as we are here and as we are hearing your word, that your still small voice will speak to each of our hearts and that we might be transformed, bringing glory and honor to your name and your name alone. We pray this all in our Savior's name. Amen. In August of 2010, a group of 33 miners faced the worst possible nightmare. A tragic accident had occurred which created a significant collapse in the mine that they were in, driving them 700 feet underground, separating them from the world around them and isolating them in deep, deep darkness. Naturally, they began to be fearful and scared. They screamed, they cried out, they prayed and they prayed and they prayed, but their voices and their prayers seemed to bounce off the cold dark rock walls. They were underground for so long that they started to even lose the track of time. They didn't know whether it was day or night. And the more time they spent underground, the more the day began to feel like years. Many of the miners began to get sick, but there was no help for them. They felt that they were in a hopeless situation. Doubt became their biggest enemy as they were in the darkness the isolation and the deepness of silence. And as reality dawned upon them of their situation, terrible questions, scary questions came into their minds. Would their cries be heard? Would they be rescued? Or would they remain there in the darkness? In our psalm today, we have seen that the psalmist is also confronted with overwhelming distress. He is facing his dark day, his day of trouble. His prayers seemingly go unanswered. He finds himself in the pit of doubt, in deep darkness. And like the psalmist, we have to confess that we also face days of trouble, times when we are full of doubt, how do you react in such situations? Situations so troubling that they test your faith in God to the absolute limit. How do you respond? Well, it's in these moments that we must do as the psalmist did. And we are called to do as the psalmist did. To follow in his footsteps. He found comfort not in a self-focused suffering but rather in turning his attention and focus to God, in reflecting and remembering his God, the character of God and the faithfulness of God. And brothers and sisters, it is my hope this morning that as we walk through the psalmist's journey together, that we too will learn that when we shift our focus from our plight to God, from self to the divine, from wailing in suffering to rejoicing and worshipping in our suffering, through our suffering, that we find a path out of the darkness. And we're going to see this journey unfold in three specific scenes. In three scenes. It commences from verses 1 to 9. 
where we find the psalmist in a state of self-focused suffering. We find that he crosses a bridge in verses 10 to 15 to a saviour-focused solution. A saviour-focused solution. And finally, he reaches his destination. He arrives in verses 16 to 20 in a place where he can worship through his suffering. Worship through his suffering. The psalmist's journey begins in a place of dark despair, sorrow, anguish, and suffering. But how does he deal with the situation? How does he express his deep despair? Well, if you look at verse 1, we see that he expresses this in a lament, with a heartfelt cry to God. I cry aloud to God, aloud to God, and he will hear me. It's a raw demonstration of faith, a sincere plea for the divine to intervene in his situation. Now, some might dismiss such a vocal cry as naive. Doesn't God know our hearts? Doesn't he hear the groanings, the silent groanings and moanings of our hearts? Doesn't he know our situation? Does he not know the number of hairs upon our head? Of course he does. But I believe that God sees this Christ to him as a sign of deep reverence, humility, and dependence upon him. But not only that, do we not have clear examples in the scriptures of the people of God, when they're in times of trouble and distress, crying out to God? We have many examples of this, in fact. The very nation of Israel themselves, when they were in bondage there in Egypt, what did they do? Were they silent? Were they quiet? Did they offer up a, a, a silent prayer in their hearts? No, they cried out to God. And their cry went up to heaven. They were heard. And God sent a deliverer. We see again the nation of Israel as we look through the book of Judges. Time after time after time when they're in trouble, they cry out to God. And he hears them. And he responds to them. And he rescues them. We turn to the New Testament. And we see the disciples, they themselves cry out to God. You remember they were there in the boat with the Lord Jesus who was sleeping and a storm came and they were fearful, they were scared. What did they do? They cried out to Jesus to save them and he stilled the storm. The apostle Peter himself, as he asked the Lord Jesus to uh, bid him to walk on the water towards him, he started to walk towards Jesus, but he got scared. And he started to sink. And what did he do? He cried out to God. He cried out to Jesus, Lord, save me. And he was saved. But the greatest example of us, which tells us that crying out to God, lamenting, is a must, is our Lord Jesus Christ himself. Remember what the Hebrew writer would say of him. In Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 7, we read, In the days of his flesh... Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death and he was heard because of his reverence. My brother, my sister, if you're in a time of grieving, if you're in a time of suffering, cry out to God and he will hear you. Psalm 34 verse 17 actually says that. The righteous cry and the Lord hears 
and he delivers them out of all their trouble. Because our cries to God, they're an acknowledgement of God's ability to do what we cannot do in that situation. It's a trust in God. You know, my children have mastered the art of crying out for help. Even our eldest, Matthias, when he's been bullied by his three terrible little sisters, will oftentimes give a, a loud yelp, help! And mommy and daddy will rush to save him. Sorry, Matthias. But we find that as the children of God, we have the great privilege of being able to cry, Abba, Father, and he will hear us. What was the psalmist going through? Well, we don't know specifically what he was going through. We're not specifically told his situation. It may have been a national problem. It may have been a personal issue. What we do know for certain is that it was the day of his trouble. It was a day of trouble. And brothers and sisters, church, perhaps you are here this morning and you are going through your own day of trouble. I don't know what it is. Perhaps it's a work situation. You have a boss or a colleague that you don't get on with and they're giving you so much anxiety and trouble that you find it very difficult to wake up in the morning to go to work. Perhaps you're facing a financial challenge where you have spent and spent and spent and now you are under so much debt you don't know how you can claw your way out of it. Perhaps it's a relationship problem. Perhaps you and your spouse have not been getting on. You've been arguing not knowing how you can communicate and reconcile. Perhaps you're single and you're looking for love and it seems to evade you and you are grieving for the loneliness that you are in. Perhaps it's personal sin that has entered your heart and it has taken a deep root in your heart. It has cleaved to your heart and it has become habitual. And we know that sin ultimately leads to death. If you are in this situation, if you are facing your day of trouble, brother and sister, do as the psalmist has done. Cry out to God. But don't just cry out to God. It doesn't stop there. Look at verse 2 and 3. The psalmist, he seeks the Lord. He turns to the Lord. He could have turned perhaps to many vices to find comfort, peace, and guidance. Perhaps you have done that in the past. When you're facing difficult challenges, you turn to different Vices. You don't turn to God. It's easy to turn away from God when we are suffering like that. Perhaps you have turned to entertainment. Perhaps you have turned to material wealth. Perhaps you have turned to your work and your career. You're working night and day. Perhaps you have become self-reliant. Perhaps you have turned to sin. But the psalmist here, he instructs us in the right way to go, to seek the Lord, and to seek him in prayer. And not just your five-minute prayer on the way to the office, but this is a deep, prolonged, and unwearying prayer. He is turning his days of darkness, his days of trouble, into days of prayer. And we must do the same. We must be on our knees night and day. That's what the expression without wearing suggests. It underscores a persistence, a desperate a desperate quest for God's help in our lives. There is a sense of tirelessness. The psalmist does not want to give up. He is praying, lifting up holy hands day and night. 
He won't give up until God hears him. It reminded me of Jacob when we see him in Genesis chapter 32. And what was Jacob doing? He was wrestling with an angelic figure. That's something out of the movies. He was wrestling with an angelic figure, but it was real life. And he does not stop wrestling. He would not let go of this angelic figure until he is blessed. And so, my brother and sister, if you are facing your day of trouble, don't give up. Continue to pray to God until he responds to you. His emotional pain is so great that typical comforts have become an ineffective uh, or, or, or meaningless. The psalmist says that he refuses to be comforted even when friends come round to try and encourage him, to let him know that things will turn out all right. He does not believe him. He does not believe them. It's like Jacob, you remember when he received the news that his son Joseph had been killed. And you recall there in Genesis chapter 37 how his sons and daughters, they arose and they arose to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. Such was the depth of his grief. So what was the psalmist seeking? He was seeking divine comfort. Not a temporary solace, but the enduring comfort that comes from the living God itself. But comfort for him, unfortunately, seems to be elusive. God seems absent. He feels that, that he's stuck 700 feet underground, isolated by himself. His cries go unheard, no response. And this apparent lack of response worsens his already miserable situation. You see that in verses 3 and 4, it drives him to moan, his spirit fainting at the very thought of the elusive God, the God who should be helping him in his situation. He's so grieved that he cannot sleep, and even this he puts to God. His emotional pain is so heavy that he can't even speak. I don't know whether any of you have been in a fight before. I've been in a few fights when I was a little bit younger. And I remember one time I got punched really hard just here. And you know what that did? It just knocked the breath out of me. I was in so much pain and agony that I could not speak. And that's the spiritual, emotional feeling that this psalmist is going through. It's like he's been punched in the chest and he has no breath to speak. So what does the psalmist do in such a situation? What would you do? Well, we'll see in verses 5 and 6 what he does. The psalmist, he goes back to the good old days, the golden era, when things were great, when he was happy, when he was singing joyful songs. And that's a strategy that most of us employ, do we not? When we're in our times of trouble, we think that by going back to better days, we will be encouraged and it will help us to be lifted out of our situation. But we find that it only seeks to produce a greater dissonance. He looks back to those happy days and he looks at his current situation and he just can't reconcile the two. He doesn't understand what's happening and it drives him into further doubt. Will he ever be able to get out of this situation and go back to better days. It drives him down a downward spiral 
deeper and deeper into the pit of doubt. And this downward spiral leads him, prompts him to raise a number of serious questions. Questions about God's love, God's promises, God's grace, God's character. He is doubting his God. Look at verse 7. Will the Lord spend forever and never again be favorable? Verse 8. Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises at an end for all time? Verse 9. Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his compassion? Selah. These are heart-wrenching questions. Questions which perhaps you have had at some point in your lives. Questions which you are probably embarrassed to know to, to let, know that anybody has known about them. Questions which some of us might feel are at the cusp of being blasphemous because they put doubt on the character and promise of God. But notice one thing as you read this. The heavens don't suddenly open up. The psalmist is not suddenly struck down. God doesn't rebuke him from heaven. The earth doesn't open up and swallow him up. He's still here. God is not afraid of our questions. God understands us. He knows our frame. He knows that we are dust. Where are these questions coming from? I believe that the psalmist's mind was going back to a particular scene, a particular event linked to the Exodus. You remember that the nation of Israel had come out of Egypt and they were there now at Mount Sinai. Moses was there on top of the mountain. He was conversing with God receiving the commandments of God for the people of God. And Moses, he sought to see the glory of God, the face of God. But of course, no man can see God and live. God will show him his back parts, as it were. God would reveal to Moses his character. And as he did so in Exodus chapter 34, verses 6 to 7, as he passes by Moses, he proclaims this, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. God was here affirming himself as a compassionate and gracious God, abounding in love. And these words, which should have been a comfort to the psalmist, have become a terror, as it were. They don't comfort him. Instead of drawing comfort from them, he, he fears that the promises have failed. He fears that the compassion has been withheld that the grace of God has been forgotten towards him, and that the love has vanished. This is the root of all his doubt. He believes in some sense that God was capable of a change in purpose with regards to his people. And how about you? Do you feel that your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, is capable of a change in purpose towards you? Has he not said, he will never leave you nor forsake you. He doesn't change. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. But it's a truth that even the best of us can find ourselves in this pit of doubt and despair. When we face dark days, it becomes very difficult to think of things with clarity and our perspective is warped. And church, if you are going through a dark night of the soul, if you are in your 
day of trouble. It's not a sign necessarily that you have a lack of faith, but it can be an invitation to deepen the relationship that you have with the living God. But we must take the steps to do that. And the first step is that we must be honest with how we are feeling, with our doubt. Bring those to God in lament. Be open with him. Be raw and honest with God. He loves you. He cares for you. But don't stop there. Seek community. You have many brothers and sisters here. Look around you who have committed to you in covenant relationship to carry each other's burdens, to help you through your time of trial. But go further than that. Do not make yourself absent and turn away from the things of God, but continue to attend the worship service. Continue to attend the prayer meeting. Continue to attend the members meeting. Even if you're feeling that God is distant and absent, come to the place where his presence is promised with his people. And so we see that the psalmist is in a tough situation. He has poured out his heart, his faith in lament. Doubt has arisen. But will he stay there? Will he stay in this pit of doubt? What will he decide? And so we see that the psalmist is hurting. He feels as if God has knocked him down. He's not sugarcoating it at all. He's been brutally honest about how he's feeling. How often do we find ourselves in the shoes of the psalmist, where we're lost, where we're questioning, when we at times feel that God's hand is against us? We all have moments where we feel that God has left the building, do we not? And it's a very sobering and difficult place to be at. But it's precisely here, at this lowest point, where the psalmist makes a profound choice. And it's there where we must make a profound choice. And what does the psalmist do? Look again at verse 10. Then I said, I will appeal to this, to the years of the right hand of the highest. The psalmist had a choice. He had a choice to stay in his despair and doubt or to choose to hope in God. He chose to hope in God. He made a clear decision to change his focus from his current circumstances to the unchanging character of the living God. It's his fork in the road moment, and he made the right decision from a self-focused suffering that we saw in verses 1 to 9 to now a savior-focused solution. He has, as it were, crossed the bridge and is on his way to move from doubt to hope in God. And so he decides to turn his attention to the years of the right hand of the Most High. What does this mean, the right hand of the Most High? This is an expression of God's power, authority, and acts of salvation. And by appealing to the years of his right hand, the psalmist is seeking to remember and reflect upon God's historic acts of deliverance and faithfulness towards his people. He wasn't going back to remember the good old days, but he was going back to recall when God had intervened in the affairs of men, in the affairs of the nation of Israel, in his own life 
to demonstrate his power. So the question today is this. What will you appeal to in your moments of despair? What will you turn to? And this change in mind sets the scene for what will come after. He not only makes a decision to change his perspective, but he follows through with it actively. Look at verses 11 and 12. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. The psalmist is following through on his intention set out in verse 10. He goes from deciding to appeal to actively engaging and remembering and pondering and meditating on the person of God and his mighty works and deeds. And this is a key strategy. It's a savior-focused solution. And it contains three simple steps. Remembering, pondering, and meditating. These words are active. The psalmist is not just passively recalling historic events, but he's actively engaging with his memories of God's deeds. He's thinking deeply about their implications, looking at them from different angles, trying to decipher what they mean and what they reveal about the person of God. And further to that, he is constantly churning them over and over and over and over in his mind until he finally realizes who God really is. And what are these mighty deeds, wonders, and works of the Lord? Well, they are the truth of God, of how he has acted in the affairs of his people to save them, to rescue them throughout the generations. It's not just nostalgia, brother and sister. What he is seeking to do is to anchor his faith in the unchanging character of God as he is remembering, meditating, and pondering upon him. Sometimes, you know, when we think about God and his acts, we get lost in the miracles themselves, in the power themselves. But we must move beyond that and to meditate on the character of God, the, the one who is performing these miracles and these signs. And so he realizes that the God who was faithful then will be faithful now and forever. And where does this lead him? It leads him to a significant realization. And we see that in verse 13, that the God whom he serves, his way is holy. His way is holy. That God is great. That God is great. Now when he says that God's way is holy, this is not just moral perfection, but he is signifying that God is completely separate and distinct from his creatures. He is higher uh, uh, to his, his creation. His actions are driven by a wisdom and a purpose that goes far beyond our human limitations. That God's ways are perfect, pure, and fundamentally different from our own. That he is in control, navigating our lives for us in his, in his wisdom and providence. I remember a number of years ago, we had one child, and we had our second um, child in the, uh, in the way, Izzy. And at that point in time, I had just lost my job, and I had no idea what I would do. I was scared. We were scared. We were confused. We didn't know what was happening. And we, we, we prayed to God, and, and we just couldn't see what good would come out of this. For months, I looked for employment, and nothing happened. Then out of the blue, I got a call for a job here in Abu Dhabi. 
And God had a plan in that uh, instance of me losing my job. And when I look back at it, I could see God in his wisdom working his providence to bring us here to this place that we might glorify him in Abu Dhabi and be part of this community. And that's what the psalmist means by God's way. It refers to his actions, his will, his character, his path for us, and his divine plan for us. It's to recognize that everything that God does is right. Everything that God does is right, even when we can't fully understand it and grasp it. I wonder whether you have come to that realization in your particular situation. Perhaps you have the blinkers on and you can't see beyond yourself. You can't think about the broader picture. You can't see things from God's perspective. God's way is holy. His way is always right. But not only does he think about God's way being holy, something else is discovered as he's meditating, as he's remembering, and as he's pondering upon the person and character of God. He realizes in verse 15 that this God is a deliverer God. He is a redeemer God. Verse 15, you with your arm redeemed your people, the children of Jacob and Joseph. This verse is such a beautiful reminder that our God has always been in the redemption business, in the business of delivering, in the business of rescuing, in the business of saving his people. We see it with the nation of Israel in the Exodus when he delivered them from that nation of Israel, from the nation of Egypt, and the nation of Israel were brought out. But we see it more clearly when he sent his only son, the Lord Jesus Christ, into this world the second person of the Holy Trinity willingly came down to this earth. For what purpose? To condemn the world? No, but that the world through him might be saved. He came to suffer, to bleed and to die, so that sinners who turn to him in repentance and faith can receive the forgiveness of sins. He, on the cross, bore our sins in his own body, the one who did no sin. He suffered the holy, righteous wrath of God against sin upon himself. No one took his life from him. He willingly laid it down so that sinners who come to him could receive forgiveness, could be reconciled with God. I wonder if you know this Savior, this wonderful Savior, this loving Savior, this caring Savior, is he your savior this morning? I don't know how you live life if you don't know this savior as your own. How are you preparing for eternity? I don't know how you get through your troubles if you don't know this savior. To whom do you go for? For peace and comfort. There is none else that can provide this divine help but Jesus Christ the Lord. And so we've journeyed through the psalmist. We've seen him in that deep valley of anguish, a valley which we've all visited at some point in our lives where we have doubts, questions, and fears. But we have noticed in this section that the psalmist did not stay there. He decided to move his attention away from himself and to God. And with this, he commenced his journey out of doubt 
and into home. And this brings him to a wonderful realization from verses 16 onwards, that when we are in our place of suffering, we can't worship. We can worship through suffering. Look, we're not told that all the psalmist's problems were resolved. For all we know, he may have still been facing this dark day of trouble. What we do know for sure is that even in his dark day of trouble, he was able to worship. He was able to find peace through suffering as he trusted and turned to the living God. But there is one particular event which has led him really to worship. One particular event that for him signifies who God is, the character of God, and the nature of God. I've hinted at it. I wonder if you've picked it up. We've talked about it in verse 1, when I talked about the nation of Israel there in Egypt, and they were delivered by the hand of Moses. I've talked about it with regards to the promise of God when he displayed his character to Moses there in Mount Sinai. Do you get it? Yes, it's the Exodus. That's what he was going back to, that significant event when God showed his character and himself for towards his people. And that scene is clearly described in verses 16 to 20. We think of God there. It says, when the water saw you, O God, when the water saw you, they were afraid. In deep they trembled. The clouds poured out water. The skies gave forth thunder. Your arrows flashed on every side. The crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind. Your lightnings lighted up the world. The earth trembled and shook. Your way was through the sea. Your path through the great waters. Yet your footprints were unseen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. This is not just poetry. This is not some Marvel movie. This is reality. The God who controls all things, the sovereign God, was showing himself to be for his people. The God who commands nature, controls nature, is the God who cares for you and for me. He cares for his people. You remember the scene, don't you? The nation of Israel had come out, they had fled Egypt, the Egyptians were behind them, and in front of them was this big, massive Red Sea. How in the world were they going to get through this? They had no escape plan, they had no strategy, and they had no power to do so. But what is impossible with man is possible with God, and God would deliver and redeem and help them through. And what does he do? With a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, he makes a way through the Red Sea where there was no way. And they walked through on dry ground. The people went safely through the Red Sea. Now, what does this tell us? What does it remind us? It reminds us that God is a God of salvation, a God who delivers his people, a God who is with his people in times of difficulty and times of distress and times of grief to make a way out of those challenging times so that they can bear it. Even when we don't see him working, he is there, he is working. Brothers and sisters, take heart in this. If you are facing your Red Sea, I don't know what that is. I don't know what your Red Sea moment is. Uh, something related to work, 
some financial issue, some relationship issue, whatever it is, remember that when we face seemingly insurmountable challenges, God is there to help his people through their Red Sea. But in case you feel that God is just this lofty, powerful God who perhaps seems a little bit distant, the psalmist wants to bring us back down to earth. And he wants us to remind us that this God is not only powerful, but that this God is personal. He's a personal God. He's a shepherd God. Look at verse 20. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. He leads us. He guides us. He shepherds us. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He knows his sheep by name. He knows your situation. And he's committed to directing your path, to guiding you to green pastures. So will you trust him in your circumstances? Will you depend on the shepherd God? Will you rely on him? Will you cleave to him? He is the king of the universe, the one who controls all things, yet he is our shepherd. Well, you may have thought that I had forgotten about the miners that we spoke about earlier. Don't be concerned. They did not stay in the a cave, as it were, 700 feet underground. News tells us that although they were in a hopeless situation, they saw a glimmer of light. After about 19 days, the workers outside were able to drill a hole through the rock and pass a note to them which said, we are coming for you. Their response, we're okay, all 33 of us. It appears that their cries, their prayers, had been answered. And after 69 long days in the darkness, the isolation and the quietness, they emerged into daylight. Brother and sister, if you are facing your day of trouble, cast your eyes to God. Reflect on God. Remember God. That is a proven strategy to move you from doubt to hope. Let's pray. Our gracious God and Father, how thankful we are for your truths, how thankful we are for the knowledge of your love, your care for us, your concern for us, that even though we may be facing dark days, even though we may be grieving and suffering, even though we may feel that you're not hearing us, we know that you will hear us. We know that you do not change, that you will never leave us nor forsake us, that you have revealed yourself as a a redeemer God, a savior, a savior who is willing to receive all who come to you. And so we pray that even in our times of hurting and grieving, we may cast our eyes on you. We may remember your character. We may recall your faithful acts, how you acted on behalf of your people to rescue them, to show yourself strong for them, and that we might in this be able to worship, to rejoice, to find peace in our suffering. In our Savior's name, amen.